Um, we are in week, let me think, this is number four of Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever. It's a sermon that Jesus preached, and this week in particular, we're talking about salt and light. So let me read the passage to you, and then I'll, I'll set it up for you. It's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me ask this. Uh, where are all my separate eaters at? Separate eaters. Come on. Where are you at? Uh, you, come on. Don't be shy. I'm one of you. you. You eat things separately. They have to be spread out. Th Thanksgiving gives us an anxiety attack, right? Like you show up to grandma's house and you get that big giant paper plate and you just put everything on the same plate and your green bean juice is running into the mashed potatoes and the gravy's running into the, the stuffing and it's just, ugh, you know, I can't. Where are you at? Separate eaters. It's got to be separate. It does not touch anything on the plate. I love those little kid plates that have like the dividers in them. You have sections for things. You know what I'm talking about? My dad had a friend. I will never forget this as long as I live. We were in his trailer and, and they had just made a bunch of food and his name was Dowdy. I don't even know his last name or first name. Everyone just called him Dowdy. And Dowdy got a plate and he just started slopping all of this food on top of each other on this little bitty paper plate. And I was staring at him like, what on earth is wrong with this man? And Dowdy had this really gruff voice. And he said, what's the matter with you, boy? It all goes to the same place. And then he was sitting there stirring it all together. And I was just like, like what is wrong with this human? What has happened to him, right? So I am that way. In fact, I am so OCD about how I eat my food that I will like plan out the portions to know what I'm going to finish last. I'll be like, okay, I got two bites of steak, three bites of mashed potatoes, and one bite of mac and cheese. Where do I want to end this thing? Where do I want to land this? Okay, I'm going to land it with a bite of steak. So let me take a little from the mash. Let me dig one bite of mac and cheese, one more bite of mash, and then I got the two bites of steak left, right? Like now you're starting to think, wow, Pastor's really crazy. He's next level. My son has inherited this from me. He is fanatical about his food touching. He is in a bad way. I mean, he will absolutely lose his mind. Here's the problem. <clears throat> There are several exceptions to this rule that actually make things better. Uh, by and large, the, the main one is Mexican food. Like, how do you not mix Mexican food together, right? You have rice, you have beans, you have queso and the sauce from the burrito and sour cream and pico de gallo and that little glob of masa stuff if you're at a good place, you know? And then you just, you just mix it all together and with chips, you go for it. It's just better when it's mixed together. I'm trying to teach my son these things because he's worse than I am. And so he had this plate the other day and he had mashed potatoes and he had corn on it. And I said, hey son, you want me to show you something really good? 
And he's like, yeah, dad, yeah. And I took his fork and I scooped up some mashed potatoes and then I dipped it in the corn and the corn stuck to it. And he started freaking out. He said, dad, what are you doing? That's disgusting. And I said, no, son, like this is really, really good. No, and he starts he starts picking out each kernel of corn. He's like, gross, this is nasty. I'm not even gonna eat the corn because it's got mashed potatoes on it. And I was like, listen, trust me one time, open your mouth. And he's like, Mm-mm-mm. so then you know you start to, I'll take away your tablet, I'll ground you for an hour. Like, I just want to put this in you. I want you to taste the, the goodness of this mixture, son. So we get the mash, we get the corn, and he opens up his mouth, and I stick it in there for him, close his mouth, and I'm like, chomp, 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 chomp. And, and then he's, he got, he, you know how they, they find something they like, right? He's like, he's like, mm-hmm. 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 I said, good, right? And he was like, yeah, it's good. You know, there are some things, not all things, that are better when they're mixed together. We have a tendency with the Sermon on the Mount and the way that we're approaching the Sermon on the Mount, and we really don't have any choice unless you want to be in church and listen to a 17-hour sermon. We have a tendency to break this thing up into sections. So we have a tendency to take our first message and say we have a new Moses with a new message to the new me, and that's one portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes is just another portion to the meal. And then we have salt and light this week, and that's just another portion to the meal. Here's the problem with that. You miss out on the full context of what Jesus is really trying to teach us if we don't just mix this whole thing together. So listen to me when I tell you this. When we're going through the Sermon on the Mount together, this is one message contextually, cohesively, that is meant to go together. So when we talk about salt and light, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. What does that mean in context? It means when you are living the Beatitudes, the results are you are salt and light. We can't separate those things, right? Or else we don't even really know what we're talking about when it comes to salt and light. Yeah, I am the salt of the world, and I got my light, and I'm going to let it shine. But what does that actually mean? That means that Jesus gave us a preface for what salt and light really was. So we're not just automatically salt and light when we're Christians. In fact, we are salt and light to the level that we live the Beatitudes out in the world. Contextually, we have to wrap our minds around this. So when we talk about being, let me see where I'm at in my notes. When we are blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the insulted. When I'm living those things, that's when I'm being salt and light. We can't separate these things. So as we talk about salt and light, and these are just a few prefaces I have to give you, and this message is going to make total sense. Every time you hear me mention salt and light, you should think back to the nine Beatitudes. That's what salt and light is. You want to know what salt and light is? And we are salt and light. Salt and light is living out the Beatitudes, which is the kingdom message, which is a life in God's presence powered by the Holy Spirit. 
We have to keep all of this together, and it's got to flow all together. Another thing that we have to know before we jump in, um, and, and there are times where this can just be taken completely out of context, is we, God loves the world. We have to understand that. What's the verse that we quote to our children all the time? For God so, for God so loved the world. God loves the world. We take James chapter 4 and say, well, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. So then we get this mindset that we hate the world, we want nothing to do with the world. That's not true. Friendship with the world is talking about a sinful nature. It's talking about the sinful nature of the world and participating in the things of the world. But God loves the world. You cannot be the salt of the earth and the light of the world with a hatred towards the thing that God loves. I hear this from time to, well, the world is going to hell, and I'll have nothing to do with it. So I'll create my own righteous community right here, and we'll reject the world. That's not what God did. That's not what he's called you to do, because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And God loves the world. He does not want you to look like the world. He doesn't want you to taste like the world. He doesn't want you to act like the world. But he wants you to love the world so that you can change the world. We are made to change the world. Can we wrap our minds around this really quick? Do you notice he didn't say, you are the salt of Galilee and you are the light of Israel. He said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And one more thing we have to cover before we jump into salt and light is it is an identity statement as to who you are. And this is very very present tense in the Greek. He is saying, you are right now, whether you like it or not, you are called to be salt of the earth, light of the world. It's who you are. It's how you identify in this world. I hear identity statements all the time, and all of them are good about who I am in Christ. And usually, they're all past tense. I am redeemed. I am healed. I am restored. I am forgiven. I am made new. That's all great, but now what? That's all wonderful. Christian maturity begins to happen when we go from what Jesus did for us to what we can do for Jesus. That's when you really start taking off. That's when you really... Living your life trying to stay one level above sin is not where you begin to take off. You begin to take off when you start saying to yourself, okay, now I have a mission. Okay, now I'm called to something. Tell me what I'm called to. So glad you asked. To be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. How do I do that? So glad you asked. There's nine of them. Go back a few verses. You'll find that's our mission. It's who we are. It's who you are. It's who I am. And let's, let's dive even a little deeper into this, okay? Because the context of this whole sermon is the kingdom message. What is the kingdom message? It is a life lived in the presence of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit within me is calling out of me to be salt and light by living the Beatitudes out in my life. So when I'm not living out the Beatitudes, I'm not being salt and light, which means I'm grieving the spirit that is within me, and the only thing that can result in a grieved spirit is a dissatisfied soul. So if you are walking around here today, and you just don't feel very satisfied, 
You don't feel very fulfilled. Don't feel very accomplished. And you could be incredibly successful. You could have built a great company. And you could have all kinds of assets. And you could have wonderful things. But in your soul, you're saying to yourself, I'm just... I'm just not very satisfied. I'm not very content. I'm not, I'm not happy. Remember, we talked about the word blessed can be happy. It's because your soul is calling out to be salt and light. And God desires for you. You are salt and light. You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. It's who you are. And your satisfaction will rise to the level that you practice being salt and light. Your contentment in your soul will rise to the level that you live out being salt and light. That's who you are. My son, uh, my, my family... The Cunningham name has a lot of pride behind it. The men in our family are, man, we're, we're Cunninghams, and don't you ever forget it, right? And so I, I've noticed myself doing this with my son. Hey, boy, we're Cunninghams. We don't, we don't do that. Or, hey, boy, we're Cunningham. We'll take care of that. You know, like, that's what Cunningham boys do. And so the other day, something was broken in our house, and I said, hey, let's go get, a, get in the truck. We're going to Home Depot because we're Cunninghams, and Cunninghams fix things. And he's like, yeah, we're Cunningham. Cunningham fix things. So we go, and we get the part that we need, and we fix this little piece on the sink, and he's with me, you know, right there the whole time. He's holding the light. He's playing with the tools, blah, blah, blah. And I just kept saying, Cunningham's fix things. Cunningham's fix things. Well, the other day, I hear uh, what sounds like a new house is being built in my garage. I hear drills. I hear an air compressor. I hear all of this stuff. And I'm like, what on earth? I thought I left my air compressor plugged in and it had drained a little air and it just kicked back on. No, no, no. My son plugged it in. He's a Cunningham. He fixed things, right? So I went out there and he's got this little bitty monster truck and it's got those rubber tires on it right? And one of the rubber tires had completely come off. And so he's got my drill. He's got about seven feet of duct tape. He's got a pile of sockets and he's got an air compressor and he's, he is going to town. And I said, boy, what are you doing? And he looked at me and he said, daddy, Cunningham's fix things. I got to tire off this truck and I'm going to put this tire back on the truck. I thought, okay, that's cute, but maybe I should teach you a little more of what Cunningham's are. So every night before bed, I'm teaching him a beatitude. Taking him one beatitude at a time, I'm teaching him, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. And then we're going to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I'm saying, son, here's what Cunningham's are. You are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And when you are poor in spirit and you long for the things of God, you will be blessed and the kingdom of heaven will be yours and you will live out salt and light. It's who he is. It's who you are. It's who we are. Okay. Let's dive in. Salt and light. Let's talk about salt first. You are the salt of the earth. Salt had three functions, okay, during this time. Some add, add taste to it. Um, you'll see contextually, taste has really little to do with what we're talking about here. The three functions of salt from a biblical perspective in these times as a Levitical priest and on is purity, preservation, and value. 
When we say, now listen, this is really, really important. I'm going to throw a ton of information at you. But this is important because contextually, when Jesus looks at a group of Jews and he says to them, you are the salt of the earth, I want to know what he means. Because he's talking to me now. You'll see as light of the world carries out, the mission is to us now. So I want to know exactly what the context means for salt. It's purity, preservation, and value. Leviticus 2 verse 13. It says, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings and salt to, and add salt to all of your offerings. It's important to understand. Levitical priests ate from the offerings given to the temple. So they had to be salted so that they would preserve, so that the priests had something to eat. So this, in context, is talking directly to preservation. He's saying, hey, when you make a grain offering, salt that offering so that it will last long enough to where we can make an offering, and then the Levitical priests will still have something to eat from. Exodus 30, verse 35, says, And make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Not only did salt carry preservation, but it carried a purity to it. It made things pure. In fact, the, we'll go to 2 Kings 2, 19 through 21. It says, this is when Elisha healed the water and he healed it with salt. It says, the people of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. In other words, it can be the most beautiful piece of property in the world, but if you can't get water to it, it's not worth anything right? So he says, verse 20, bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, verse 21. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make a land unproductive. There was this this supernatural healing property that they carried with. So they would add it to their offerings for preservation for the Levitical priests. And then they would also add it for purity. And they knew the story of Elisha. They lived the story of Elisha. So they're saying to themselves, I remember when salt also had that healing effect. I remember when it had that purity, when it purified. I remember when it turned things around. So there is this preservation there is this purity, and now catch 2 Chronicles 13, 5. It says, don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship to, of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Salt was value. Salt communicated value. It was an exchange of value. In fact, the word salary comes from the Latin root salt money. So when we say the word salary, what that originally rooted meant was salt money. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. You've heard the phrase, they're not worth a grain of So what are we called to do? When we say we're the salt of the earth, we're saying we bring purification. We bring preservation. We bring healing. We bring value to things. When we show up, we bring value into a situation. When we show up, we bring purity into a situation. When we show up, things are preserved. Things are set up to last longer. How do we do that? Nine Beatitudes. 
We've already talked. By being poor in spirit and longing for the Lord. By hungering and thirsting for the things of God. By being merciful. By being a peacemaker. By being meek. By mourning with those who mourn. That's how we become the salt of the earth. And it's what we are. We are salt. Say that with me. I'll say we are, and I want to hear what you are. We are We're salt. We bring value. We bring purity. We bring the preservation of things. We bring the healing of things into situations. So we recently at our house this summer, we did a stock tank pool. No love, no respect, no anything. Come on. Stock, y'all think, man, that's more of a hillbilly than I thought. Well, maybe so. But uh, we did. In fact, it was inspired by Brett and Marissa. I know you guys watch online. Brett was the one. We went over to their house. They have an incredible stock tank pool. So we said, okay, we're in. I found the only remaining 10-foot stock tank in Houston, Texas. It was at Steinhauser's way out in Hempstead. We said, okay. We're going, Brett actually helped me haul it, and we put this huge 10-foot stock tank on a flatbed trailer, strapped it down. We were driving on the highway. I said to Brett, I said, man, how are we going to have enough room? And he said, we'll have as much room as we need. Everybody else is going to have to figure out how to, how to get around it. So we finally got it to my house. We got it in the backyard, and I put a pump on it, right? And so we had the water, was filtering, and it was flowing, and I called my buddy, who owns a pool company. He's been installing pools for 40 years. His dad started it. He works for his dad now. Now he owns it. And I said, hey, man, guess what? I was like, what? I said, man, I did a stock tank pool in my backyard. He's like, wow, whoop-dee-doo, you know? I do the real thing if you ever want it, you know? And so I told him, I said, no, man, it's awesome. And he said, what are you doing to keep the water pure? And I said, dude, you don't know my family. We're natural. We're organic. We're GMO, HMO, PPO, CCO free, right? We got none of those things going on, and we ain't putting no chemicals in the water, right? We may drop a little uh, uh, essential oils in there, put a little lavender and peppermint in there. That heals everything. You know about that, right? Jesus and essential oils heal the world. (laughs) That balm that, that Jesus made when he put on the eyes of the blind man, it had essential oils in it, just so you know. Pool of Bethesda, they lowered that crippled man into the pool of Bethesda. You know, it had essential oils in it. You know that, right? <laughs> Ask any young living mom. They'll tell you this. They'll tell, in fact, they're going to take this. They're going to post it. They're going to be like, my pastor said that essential oils were in the pool of Bethesda. There's healing in that stuff. There is. Hey, you know that perfume that the widow put on Jesus' feet? Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Listen, we, we got to make fun of essential oils. It's Father's Day after all. How many of us have been living with it? We've been smelling it. We've been getting it on our neck when we got allergies and all kinds of stuff, right? It's there, and it's real. Praise God for peppermint oil and lavender when I got allergy attack. Anyways, okay. Um, so, told him. I said, hey, we're not, we're not putting anything in our water, right? And he said, well, he said, man, huge mistake. I said, why? He said, if you don't put something in there that keeps it pure and that preserves the water... 
bacteria will grow, slime will grow, algae will grow. And I was like, okay, man, yeah, I hear you. Hung up the phone. I thought to myself, what does he know? He's been doing pools 40 years. I'll, I'll leave it organic. You know, we'll just, we'll be that family. I'm not kidding you. Two, three days, there was this slime on the inside. You could go, and you couldn't even stand it. It was so slick. The ground, the bottom floor of it was so slick. There was slime everywhere. The water felt slimy and gross. So we ordered this stuff off Amazon. And we put it in there, and it wasn't a day later. We put a scoop of that stuff in, ran the filter, crystal clean. It was beautiful. It, was per it has been the same ever since. It's been raining nonstop. That water's still pure. Why? Because there is something in it that makes it pure. There's something in it that is preserving the integrity of it. That is what you are. You are the salt of of the earth. You are that thing that steps into your office and you bring purity into your office. You bring value into your office. You bring preservation into your office. You are that pillar in your home that is salt. My home is pure because I'm salt. My home is valuable because I'm salt. My home is being preserved because I'm salt. You are that thing at the family get. You are the salt of the earth. That's who you are. That's what we've been talking about. It's who you are. Man, we got enough time. I've been, I've been thinking whether or not to go here, and I just really, I really feel like we do. Throw up verse 13 on there, guys. All right, buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Verse 13, he says, don't you know, let me get out of the way here. No, uh, Matthew 5, verse 13. Throw up Matthew 5, verse 13. A couple verses back. There you are. Way to go. Hey, give the production team a hand. I run them. I don't put it in order, and I give it to them, and they're like, whoa, 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 and you guys do such a great job. Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. We know that. We've been hammering that home. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Next part. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So they got their salt from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, would, waters would recede. The Dead Sea is filled. It's the most dense body of salt water on, in the world. I've been there. I've floated in that thing. Um, it is. You, you will hover on the top of that thing. There's so much salt in it. And they would get their salt from the shores of it, right? And what would happen was if that salt stayed on the shores for too long, that the very decay, the very uh, bacteria and things that they tried to prevent would make their way into the salt, making the salt impure. Now, it still looked like salt, so it had this white powdery look to it, and they would gather it, and they would take it, and they would pack their off with it and they would pack their meat with it and they would give it unto the Lord not knowing the very thing that they were trying to prevent they were putting into what they wanted to keep pure that's what we're talking about and he says that kind of salt that salt is worth nothing more than to just be walked on I, I don't know what it is about Western evangelical Christianity. But sometimes, there are, there are some times, and I'm not grouping everyone and everything into this category at all, but it is, it is no doubt there are some that would rather fight 
culture than form character. We'd rather fight culture and fight culture and fight culture rather than form character. And we're, we are not merciful. We're not merciful at all. If anything, we're merciless. And we will come out against and attack and fight and mount up against anything. And we, man, we don't, we don't hunger for the things of God like we should. We don't hunger for righteousness like we should. We will come out and lamb blast anyone who doesn't stand for what we stand for and then we'll call it persecution. And we will champion the people who stand with us and agree on everything with us and we will call it peacemaking by mounting up arms with our people. And the whole time, we become this church-going, social-posting, biblical-values-voting movement with no power. We're not changing anything. Why? Because we'd rather fight than form care. I'm not saying the issues aren't important. Hear me when I say the issues matter, but the issues aren't the mission. What is the mission? Salt and light. How are we salt and light? There's a list of nine of them that you can refer to. And here's what happens. Sometimes we would rather have enough of God in culture to make us feel safe in the world, but not enough of him in us to change the world. So what I'm calling you to do is to reflect right here. Because I, I am with you, I am for you, and I agree there are issues that matter. But what I'm saying to you is, I, I don't know anyone that has walked up and said, I want to be a biblical values voter, and I don't even know who Jesus is. Never met that person. But I know a lot of people that get saved, that start transforming, that become part of a body of Christ, and that start sitting under God's word and start experiencing grace, start experiencing being poor in spirit, start experiencing mercy from people, start having people mourn with them, start having people longing to make peace with them, and all of a sudden their heart changes, and guess what? Their values do too. But when you start forming character first, that's all that I'm saying. We've got to be, we have got to start majoring on forming character and quit thinking. Our first response is not to fight, it's to form character. And the first person I'm forming character in is me because I'm salt of the earth. And if I become this salt of the earth that's contaminated with everything, I'm no good but just a walking trail of white powder. So I've got to start forming character. That's what I'm saying. We want to change the world, be salt of the earth. That's it. Be salt of the earth through everywhere, all people in everything. When they come in contact with you, let them say, I feel valuable being around that person. I feel pure being around that person. I feel like something in me is being preserved. I feel like I can go another day. I feel like I can go another week. I feel like I've got something to, that's the witness. That's what changes lives and will change everything else that we're longing for. But this is where we're at. It's a countercultural message to form character. What should be our number one mission? To be the salt of the earth. How do we do that? Refer back to the nine. That's what the salt of the earth 
is. And I'm telling you, that is what is changing things. That is what is moving. That is where the power is at. Don't misquote me. I've had a lot of people that have loved to do that recently. I am not saying the issues don't matter. I'm saying they're not the mission. The mission is salt and light, the gospel of Jesus Christ, changing lives, changing hearts, people growing in their faith, and by growing in their faith, growing in the word, growing in their worship, and transforming. That's salt and light. Thank you, thank you in the back. Okay, let's move on. This one's great. Light of the world. Are you ready for this? Hey, first of all, let me, let me ask you this. How many of you have a song or something in your past? We're going to play a song here in a second. How many of you have a song that when you hear that song, it instantly takes you back to a moment, a moment in time where you can picture where you were, who you were in love with, who you really, really cared about at that time, and it just, it just takes you back. I've got one that I want to play for you. Any of you that, uh, man, just, just go ahead, guys. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Come on. Blow the speakers out. Let's play it. Oh, more, 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 more. Yeah, there we go. You already know it. <laughs> See, baby. Come on. Come on. Hey. Yeah. I didn't either. I love you. Oh, here it comes. Come on, build it. Let's hear you. Oh, I hear you. Yeah, middle school dance. I don't like her no more. I can see your Okay, okay. How about that, huh? You remember that? <laughs> My wife hates that song. You know why? Because she was dancing with some dork at some high school dance she thought she was in love with during that song. It came on one time, and she was, I was like, oh, babe. Alexis playing a jam for us. And she was like, eh, no, I don't know about that one. I was like, what? She's like, well, there was this dance, and it was the last song in high school. And I was like, I hate that song. That song. Get, get that. Alexa, never play that song again, right? You know, but what happens? You hear that song, and that song takes you back to a moment. It takes you back to time. Here's what I want to set up in five minutes. I want to set up for you probably the greatest time warp the children of Israel have ever experienced. They are, let's be Jews. You ready? Let's be Jews. Let's jump in. We're all Jews. We're sitting on the seaside of Galilee. The water is crashing in the background. Zebulun to our northwest. Naphtali to our northeast. We have, we have all of these things that are happening. It's a beautiful day. The soil is rich. Jesus is preaching. We're all crowded. We're all amening. We're ready to hear from God. And now let me bring you through the background. Isaiah 9 1 through 2. This is the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel, and he's prophesying about a light that's coming. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of, mark these, mark these in your Bible, Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of 
the nations. Remember, those of you that are in context right now, we are in the Sea of Galilee seashore with Zebulun and Naphtali right here. He said, by the way of the sea, isn't that incredible? Probably saying, by the way of the sea, Zebulun and Naphtali were humbled but no more. The future of Galilee and the nations beyond the Jordan. So there he's extending beyond the borders of Israel. He is saying there is a light and that light is going to show up near Zebulun and Naphtali. And that light is going to be by the Sea of Galilee. And that light is going to touch the nations. And that light is going to go beyond the Jordan. And he says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So we're all Jews, we're, we're there, and we're thinking, okay, a light is coming. And not only is that light coming, but that light is going to change everything. And it's going to extend beyond, it's going to come through us, and then that mission is going to extend beyond, beyond the Jordan. And that light is going to change everything. And they're sitting there, and they're saying to themselves, give us this light. We're ready for this light. Isaiah 51.4, he alludes to it again. Listen, listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. Isaiah 60, verse 3, he says, Nation will come to your light. Nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your dawn. Okay. This was Isaiah's prophecy to the nation of Israel. We're Jews. We're the nation of Israel right now. We're sitting on the, seaside, the seashore, and we're saying to ourselves, there is a light that's coming, and ironically, that light was going to be near the seas of Galilee with Zebulun and Naphtali here, and it was going to extend beyond the nations, and it was going to go beyond the Jordan. This is really, really interesting. Now, just a little more context. Matthew 4, 13 through 16. I want to put you right in the same spot. Leaving Nazareth, this is the setup to the Sermon on the Mount, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Where is he? He's in the exact same spot where the prophecy was given. He's in the exact same spot where the Lord is saying years and years and years before, a light's coming. Get ready for that light. It's coming. He's there. He says, then he continues on, verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes that Isaiah 9-2 passage. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Galilees. The people lived in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, we're ready. We know a light's coming. We know it's coming to this location, and we're all gathered for the sermon. And what does Jesus say? Don't forget, John chapter 8, Jesus came and declared he was the light of the world. Light of the world, and anyone who comes to him shall no longer live in darkness, for they have found the great light. So he has already claimed to be the light, and now he's standing here, Sea of Galilee. We're all Jews. We're listening in. We know the prophecy. We know the location. And we're saying, where's the light? We know the light's coming, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. Come on, Jews. You are the light of of the world. Give me a surprise face. What? What? One more time. You are the light of the world. What? What? That's, 
Do you, you have got to understand what just happened. They have waited generationally, year after year after year, tribe after tribe after tribe, exile and then recovery and come back. And they have been waiting for this great light that Isaiah prophesied. And they just so happen to be standing in the very spot, in the very location, with the light of the world, who stands up and he declares to them, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's what happened. They went from saying, a light is coming. Wow, we're in the very location. Wow, he just called himself the light. Maybe he is the light. And then he says, no, you are the light. And they went, well, what, me? You're talking about me? And he passes the mantle of the mission of the gospel to illuminate, to change lives, and to change the world to his people. That's us. So he says, you are the fulfillment of the light that everybody has waited for. And then he gives these two illustrations, and I'll just I'll pick one and roll with it real quick. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So they would have to travel town to town. And as they were traveling town to town, it was very dark, very dangerous, and they would build their cities on a hill. And at the very top of that hill, they'd build their city. And at the highest point in the city, they would light a torch at night. And what that did is that let you know when you were traveling from one place to another, all you had to do was see the light of that city. And if you saw the light of that city, you knew where you were. One of the most horrific things to be is to be found in the middle of the desert, traveling to a city with no light to guide you, with wild animals, with thieves, and everything in between. But when you saw that light, you know where you were going. That's what he says you are. You are the light of the world. In other words, you are continuing the mission. And not only are you continuing that mission, but you are that mission when people don't know where to go, when people don't know what to turn to, when people are scared, when people are worried, when people are lost, when people are wandering around saying, what does the future have for me? Where do I go? What do I do? My marriage is a mess. My kids are a mess. My life feels like a mess. I don't know what my future is. You are that light. They should encounter you. And you should give them direction. And you should give them hope. And you should mourn with those who mourn. And you should be meek with those who need meekness. And you should be humble. And you should be poor in spirit. And you should be hungering for the things of God. And you should be a peacemaker. And when you are those things, you will attract those that need light. And those that need light will find you. And then we become salt of the earth, Light of the world. You want to talk about changing the world, be salt. You want to talk about changing the world, just be a light. Be the light that God promised years and years ago that's been handed to us.